Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. If I had to choose one word to capture this moment in American and maybe world history, patience wouldn't be it. From every direction, everything demands our urgent attention. Everything is a ticking time bomb or one that's just exploded, and we're all the poorly trained volunteer ambulance squad. I don't mean to dismiss the challenges we face. Climate change, families being ripped apart while seeking asylum, a school shooting every other week, just to name a few. These are all very real, very urgent indeed. I'm not advocating stoic indifference, but in fight or flight mode, we have a tendency to make drastic either or decisions. We forget, as my guest today would have it, how to count to two. He's New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik, and he's the author of the new book, A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. It's a surprising and surprisingly necessary book at this cultural moment, and it's willing to look awkward and uncool in the eyes of Gopnik's teenage daughter and her generation by defending good old-fashioned, pluralistic, humanistic liberalism. Liberalism, as Gopnik puts it, is more of a rhinoceros than a unicorn, a creature of evolutionary compromise that's not always pretty to look at, but put a saddle on it, he argues, and it gets you more or less where you need to go. Welcome to Think Again, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here, Jason. So the book is written to a certain extent as an address to your daughter. Letter to my daughter. Yeah, letter to your daughter, yeah, Olivia. Right. In response to her response to the election of, of, of 2016. Yeah, it, be, it began, and, and it wasn't, it's not a rhetorical gambit. It actually began on the night of the 2016 election when she was completely traumatized by the result, by Donald Trump being elected. As I think so many uh, young women and young men too, but particularly young women of her generation were, because it seemed right. such an assault on everything that they had been raised to believe was possible and true. And as I say in the book, it wasn't that she was shocked that the other party had won, because, nor would I have been sympathetic if that had been her issue. It was that the whole set of values in which she had been raised to believe seemed uh, not just vulnerable, but in many respects overturned. So we went out for a long, long walk that night in which I put my arm around her and I tried to reassure her about our values and I failed completely <laughs> to communicate a single relevant idea or offer a single cogent reassurance. So I sort of made a mental memorandum to myself, I am gonna write this as a letter to Olivia as she's ready to graduate from high school about why the values that I've been preaching to her, her whole life are not just the values of the family shop, the things we've inherited, but really have significance, are enduring, right. will matter in the world. You, you can rely on them to do good work. And the first thing I'd say, though, Jason, is, is that patience is certainly, I think, a virtue in the world, but it's not really what this book enjoins, and it's not okay. what, for me, liberalism enjoins. And I don't even think you can, you probably can find the word someplace in the book, but it isn't my prescription, because the people I offer to Olivia as heroes and heroines particularly, weren't particularly patient people. I, you know, the book begins, as you know, with um, the, the greatest liberal thinker, John Stuart Mill, and his greatest teacher, his lover and wife, Harriet Taylor. And they were passionate absolutists about the end of slavery, about right. women's rights in particular, about freedom of speech, freedom of even the most blasphemous kind of speech. So they weren't patient in the sense that they were saying, oh, well, we'll take a little they were, bit of this and a little bit of that, and we'll be happy here in the middle of the road. They were saying, we believe passionately in values that don't exist in the world right now, but we accept that it's in the nature of the world to be a pluralistic place where there's going to be a lot of dispute, a lot of contention, a lot of competing views, and we embrace those contradictions. We'll reconcile those difficulties. We'll believe in 
compromise and contradiction as uh, sacred words, fighting words, rather than as things to retreat from. At risk of committing the cardinal sin of failing to kill my darlings mm -hmm. um, and sort of <laughs> defending my reading of your book, right. I guess what I meant, and you correct me if I've right. missed a point here, uh, by patience is that it seemed to me that the way you explain liberalism is that progress, I mean, while it can happen quickly, the kind of progress that a lot of people are looking for often happens by oh, degrees absolutely. over time. Oh, there's no question about that. This is a book that's about incrementalism in that sense, yeah. that, it, that it often just takes time and you have to work at it. And that's why the heroes and heroines in the book are incrementalists in that way. You know, another one of my favorites is uh, Bayard Rustin, not a name right. a lot of people conjure with now, but he was the great black gay genius who organized the March on Washington and gave a frame for Dr. King to speak in. And that, he accepted it would just take time. It took time to charter all the buses. It took time to make the sandwiches and it took time to make the revolution in civil rights. So absolutely, this is a book in favor of incrementalism, but it's not a book in favor of centrism. And one of the things I wanted to try and clarify for Olivia and for the readers, obviously more important, was that uh, liberalism isn't centrism. It isn't a way of sort of taking the uh, acceptable view, you know, take a right. little of this and a little right. of that, and then you find a wishy-washy middle. It's a movement, an historical movement for radical change by humane measures. And that's what makes liberalism, liberalism. So among the passionately held values and maybe the central passionately held value of liberalism as you explain it is compassion. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, for me, liberalism, liberal humanism in the sense that I'm trying to defend in the book begins not with the famous 17th century philosophers like Locke and Montesquieu, the guys who thought about constitutions. It begins with Montaigne, the great Renaissance first essayist, so obviously I have a I have a class interest in promoting his cause, but I he was the first one to say, look, we are broken. We are born broken. We're born right. failable. We are born double. Everything we believe, we believe the opposite of, and that's the cent central human condition. And we have to build our values out of the acceptance of our absolute failabism. And that for me is where real liberalism begins. It begins the understanding that there is no perfect world. There is no perfect person. There is no utopia to achieve, that we have to make our politics the way we make our interactions out of compassion for each other's failures rather than out of constantly pressing forward to unreal perfection. It seems like a lot of the discourse that happens now is around a passionate desire to point out hypocrisy wherever it might be. Right. And it seems like fallibilism uh, as a guiding star is essentially, without using the word hypocrisy, admitting that we are all hypocrites in that sense. Yeah, you know, Jason, in an instance which I don't think I included in the book, but I did a long essay about Frederick Douglass right. this past summer. And one of the things that comes up whenever you're writing about, I think, the greatest American, Frederick Douglass, is he wasn't great on women's issues, you know, on, on women's right to vote, women's suffrage in the 19th century. Right. Because he felt that the urgency of the abolitionist fight was so overwhelming that, from his point of view, to waste time worrying about whether white women could vote was very secondary. Boy, that seems wrong to us now, and it seems like a failure <laughs> yeah. of compassion, empathy on Douglas's part. But what I said about that is that we have to be compassionate about other people's failures of that kind, not out of charity for them, but out of charity for ourselves, because the future will look back and see in us in ways we can't even begin to imagine now, all of our failures of empathy and compassion and understanding. And that's built into the nature of human existence. 
And exactly, therefore, this, the business of pointing out other people's hypocrisies, though valuable in itself, only can be done with the understanding that we are guilty of similar hypocrisies ourselves, which we're not yet even capable of, of recognizing. One wonders, like, which of us would not be canceled if someone took a close enough microscope. Yeah, and we, we live in that glass house. We make our lives within those glass houses. And so then the question becomes, how do we all coexist within a house made of glass walls? And one answer is respectfully, right. because we, we don't want to let the wind start blowing in. So that's what pluralism means. Sure. But it doesn't mean, and forgive me if I seem pugnacious on this point, no, no, but no, it's, it's so central to what I'm saying. It doesn't mean sort of shrugging in an equitable way and saying, oh, just wait to deal with climate change or wait to deal with equal opportunity for women or wait to deal with the hundred pressing and urgent issues. It just means press, absolutely, Olivia or oh, anyone else. Right, right, right. And, but uh, do it with the understanding that pluralism means recognizing that other people have egos as large as your own and convictions every bit as passionate as your own, which are not identical to your own. I saw an article in the in the Times, I believe, yesterday, I'm sure you saw it too, yeah. about uh, Woody Allen, about how he went around shopping his autobiography to various... Oh, no, no, I didn't see this, actually. Okay. I, don't, so he, I don't read the Times. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Addiction, right. uh, really? You, yeah. don't, you don't read the New York Times? I read it sporadically, but I, <laughs> I, I try to spare you're, myself. You're like one of the most New York people I've ever met. Right. I'm kind of surprised. Yeah. Yes, no, it's, it's my perversion. Well, New Yorkers all have to have a pet perversion and make that mind. <laughs> but, you know, that he apparently has gone around shopping mm -hmm. an autobiography to various right. publishers, and many of them have refused to. I mean, on business principles, it's right. toxic at this moment, whatever. But I think about that in the context of absolutism. Yes, I think that's, you know, when you consider what Woody Allen has invented, contributed. And even if you were to imagine, and I don't, and I don't share those that view of, but even if you were to imagine the worst, the notion that we should censor the witness or the testimony of right. somebody who has seen, who has lived a significant life, boy, that isn't the way, you know, the great memoirs and confessions of of all time, from St. Augustine through right. Chateaubriand and including Casanova and Frederick Douglass are as often tales of failures and of setbacks. Boswell is the, probably the greatest diarist of all time, and all he does is recount his misdeeds. So I right. think that that particular kind of censorship of the full humanity of our experience is extremely dangerous. And I'll add one more thing. It's you know the famous saying of Goya's, right? The sleep of reason begets monsters. Right. The more you repress, the worse it gets. And there's obviously some relationship between those of us here on the progressive side of things and our appetite for moralism and the the unreasonable alt-right response to that. Those two things go hand in hand in my mind. Sure, sure. That makes perfect sense. I'm wondering, since you wrote the book, since you mm -hmm. sat down and took the time to try to give a fuller explanation than you were able to give to Olivia mm -hmm. in the moment, how has that conversation unfolded? Do you feel like With you her, got through it, to her? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, if the, the, par the joke and the paradox is she's moved well to my right in the succeeding two years. Oh, really? Yes, I think she, I don't know if she would go all the way to self-identify as a conservative, but she certainly has moved to my right in as much as she's become increasingly impatient and she can speak for herself and, and sure, I she sure. will. Sure, sure, I don't expect right. that you're yeah. speaking for her. Um, yeah. it, with the pieties of the academic left and the conventional mm. left and impatient with 
the obsession with the circumspect courtesies of everyday life against the larger political picture. It's something what, what I, some people label PC or, uh, or yes, or, or, and I, I don't ever want to use that yeah, yeah, phrase because yeah. I'm so familiar. I remember when it first appeared, it was always meant ironically. It was meant by liberals self-critiquing, make mocking themselves, saying, "Oh, well, that's not politically correct." It was never a serious term used seriously. But yes, I mean, I think you know. I remember on the day that morning after the election, I hadn't slept all night, and we went to my son's college actually. And the first thing he said was, "Well, at least pronouns are over." meaning that confronted with a true authoritarian challenge to mm. liberal democratic values, we won't have time to focus on the minutiae of intimate address on pronouns. What, right. what are the right pronouns? Right, right. And in fact, the opposite, I'm afraid, has, has happened. We have more pronouns now than ever, and we're more constrained about a speech and less able as a consequence to build, I fear sometimes, effective coalitions, which is what democratic politics are all about. It's about saying to someone, with whom you don't agree about a hundred things, but you do agree about the one essential thing, protecting liberal institutions, let's say, it becomes harder to build those coalitions because we're so obsessed with the minute courtesies of, of speech and behavior. Yeah, I mean, I, I sometimes think, and I, if I'm not mistaken, your book does make this point that a lot of the a lot of the difficulties in the atomization mm -hmm. of society have to do with the fact that people just don't spend too much time too close together anymore. That yeah. basically we're, you know, there there aren't community spaces. You talk about social capital. Yeah, exa yeah, exactly. You know, that's a very important theme in the book. And yes, and, and thank you for for spotting it. One of the truths about liberalism is, is that though we're always accused of being statists who reference everything the government, the truth is the ground, the foundation of, of liberalism is in the community enterprise, in what Frederick Law Olmsted, you know, the great designer of Central Park called commonplace civilization, all the ways people come together outside a government, but also outside clan connections, outside family connections, and have to learn to live together, whether it's right. a softball team or a uh, volunteer fire department or a glee club or a fireworks group. These were all things that Olmsted pointed out. That's how democracy is made. And that's not just pious liberal blather. You know, all of the great studies made by Robert Putnam, who I also reference in the book a lot, great sociologist, about where democracy takes hold, says the precondition is that people are already accustomed to dealing with other people who don't belong to their clan, who are not in any sense blood relations, but whom they manage to knock along. If you have those social institutions, social capital in place. Right. They can be coffee houses in 18th century France, or they can be uh, softball teams in 19th century uh, America. I guess they were still playing baseball exclusively. Then you have a shot at having democratic values. If you don't have those, you don't. And it doesn't matter how good your constitution is if you don't have commonplace civilization in place already. It means a willingness to tolerate a certain amount of discomfort, which we don't like discomfort and we're more willing to tolerate it when our lives and our institutions are structured in such a way that we have no choice but to tolerate it. And so one wonders, given the opportunity to retreat into our little atomized bubbles, like what would actually force us together again? Well, you know, the truth is democratic politics ought to force us together. Mm. Again, I know that I have the terrible dad uh, <laughs> uh, sin of referencing my kids' experience as central to 
all evidence. <laughs> and I, I confess to that and I apologize for it. But it was very interesting. My son, Luke, who's a, doing graduate school in philosophy, a very abstract thinker, unlike his sister, who's extremely active and practical, mm. um, went to work on the Max Rose campaign in Staten Island. Okay. Now, I don't know if you followed Max Rose's campaign. I did but, not. Well, this is, it's really interesting, you know, because AOC and bless her and we love her, ran her campaign in a deep blue district in Brooklyn where basically any Democrat- My district, yeah. Is, is that, mm -hmm. Well, basically any Democrat who showed up would win. Max Rose was running as a Democrat, a liberal Democrat, in Staten Island, where not only no Democrat had won, but basically no Democrat could show up without <laughs> being lynched for a very long time. And they ran an extremely effective campaign, which they had to take Max Rose, who was a war veteran and unquestionably a patriot, who had to say that he opposed Nancy Pelosi, right. that he was in favor of national health care and was in favor of all of the progressive agenda. And they had to forge a way of speaking. I mean, literally knock on a door to someone who's got four American flags flying outside their house and explain why Max Rose was a better choice for your life than the Republican candidate. And they won. They turned a 40-point deficit around. They won by five points. That's where coexistence, that's where pluralism, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's really interesting yeah. because you have this wonderful sentence in your book yeah. where you try to sum up liberalism and you point out that it's a big, clumsy, awkward right. sentence ultimately. Worst uh, sentence I've ever written, and it's true, <laughs> deliberately so. Yeah, and you know, so the idea of a s successful elevator pitch, as it were, for yeah. liberalism, I wonder how did they get that across? It seems like explaining the value of messy incrementalist progress is not an easy sell. Well, I don't think you can sell it as an idea, but mm -hmm. you can demonstrate it as a temperament. And again, I'm simply, I'm quoting my, my son Luke here, the first thing you do is you listen. You make it plain that though I look like a millennial kid, I'm in fact here to ask you what you think about the world as it is, right. not to lecture you. They were always instructed to be honest, they, to say, I'm here not for Max Rose, liberal Democrat, I'm here for Max Rose, um, war veteran, uh, sure, military sure. veteran. Points now, of contact. Points yeah. of contact, yeah. exactly. Because once you say that, the door opens a little bit wider. The guy you're representing isn't alien to me. He's actually done something that I respect and that I can admire. It's like Mayor Pete has that same foundational appeal. And I say in the book too, Jason, and I think it's important that one of the ways in which liberalism has had a terrible deficit in the last 20 or 30 years is we don't talk patriotism very well. Yes, I'm glad we, you got onto right. that. I wanted we, to talk We don't have a good, we neither have a very good account of it so to speak, theoretically, but we also don't talk it practically very well. Because, and I've you know written about this as well, and I tried to write about it in the book, patriotism, it's like one of those, uh, you know, um, tiny subatomic particles, which, you know, <laughs> then breaks down instantaneously into some other subatomic particle. Patriotism has a very short half-life and it turns into nationalism very rapidly. And we live in an era of such returning nationalism of the ugliest imaginable kind in this country, sure. certainly, but also in Britain, throughout all of Europe, in Russia, obviously. And we know how toxic nationalism can be. We know how xenophobic and racist it can be. So we're understandably reluctant to touch the little particle of patriotism because we fear that it's going to break down into nationalism. To that, if I may, I would add yeah. that our military history over the last decades doesn't align very well with humanistic 
compassion-based no, values. No, it, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, a funny thing about that, and it's not something I discuss at great length in the book, I discuss it a, a bit, is that I remember when 9-11 was supposed to be the thing that was going to alter everything, and everything was aligned around those fights, and, those, and that seems to have vanished from our fundamental understanding right mm. now, and appropriately so, rightly so. That right. was an incident. It wasn't a wave. Nonetheless, I think that that's true, that we have a million reasons why we should be suspicious of patriotism. But if we don't have an account of it, you can't knock on that door in Staten Island right. and speak to that to the man with the and the family with the four American flags because, like it or not, that appetite for identity, that appetite to feel that my place is special and I have a place in my place, that's as far as we can tell. That's an eternal human appetite, and we can either uh, we have to manage it because we're not going to master it. We're not going to make it go away. Right. And that's one place, and as I say at the end of the book, where I think we as liberals, as progressives, have to do much better. But so do you think that this is a matter of, is this a matter of actually reclaiming a, a real kind of patriotism or that it's actually, or that it's about talking to people who are patriotic? I had Richard Dawkins on the show sure. a long time ago, and he was talking about you know, he was arguing that we ought to evolve at some point beyond nationalism. That is, you know, that for the sake of the world, it really doesn't make sense to be like, rah, rah, my country. To totally. Yeah. And I, of course I feel that way. I'm, a, I'm what they used to call a rootless cosmopolitan. That was the, the guy they, you know, that both the Soviets and the Nazis hated equally. Right? It's a multisyllabic way of saying Jew. Jew, right. Say, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> The first thing we have to do is we have to make the distinction for ourselves, because I'm enough of an intellectual to think that getting the ideas right really matters between patriotism and nationalism, mm. between a profound, passionate love of place, which I think we all feel. I feel it for New York City. I, sure. hate, I hate leaving New York City. I just, I never, nothing seems quite real to me outside <laughs> New York. And nationalism, which means that sense of victimization, that we have been unfairly treated. It's what we witness every day from President Trump. Right. I hate to use that expression even. But we've been unfairly <laughs> treated. We've been persecuted. We have to now vindicate ourselves. We are the victims, and we have a right to our revenge. That's what nationalism sure. is all about. And it's the opposite of patriotism. It's not, a, uh, it's not remotely the same thing. So we first have to clear that, I think, in our own minds. And then when we present ourselves and our program, we have to do it in a way that's credibly patriotic, that says to the veteran on Staten Island, listen, the sacrifices you've made and the commitments and the allegiances you have are going to be much better served if you and your kids never have to worry about you going bankrupt because you have a heart attack. They're going to be much better served if we have a shared national service. They're going to be much better shared if we have a higher inheritance tax so the kid who's lucky enough to have been born wealthy doesn't have overwhelming advantages over your kids who have been merely born the kids of a serviceman or servicewoman. So we can make, if we articulate to ourselves the power of patriotism, distinguish it from nationalism, I think we can in very practical and specific ways make that case in Staten Island or in Indiana or in all the other places where if we're going to rescue ourselves from this emergency, and I think we're living in the midst of an unprecedented national emergency, we're going to have to do it by knocking on those doors. And we're not going to knock on those doors successfully simply by repeating what we know and feel already. We're going to have to embrace pluralism as a principle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in the context of pluralism and liberalism, patriotism as opposed to nationalism is essentially just 
self-respect and the ability yes. to respect others to say, okay, yeah. rah, rah, my country, I love my country, but that doesn't necessarily smuggle in hierarchy. That doesn't have to mean your country is It doesn't lesser. mean <laughs> let's go invade Iraq. I mean, it's right. a simple thing. It's yeah, yeah. the opposite of let's go right, invade Iraq. Right, right. And the right response to 9-11, and I think it was what all New Yorkers felt. My God, I love this place. I hate seeing it attacked. To see it despoiled and uh, in that way catches me at the core of my being to see. And that's how I think we all felt on that day. Yeah. And let us protect this place and its values. And let's vindicate the values of all those people who were killed simply trying to go to work from every imaginable background. Not let's go, let's go make a war in a, in a foreign- has right. nothing to do with Nothing has event. nothing to do yeah. with it. Right. <laughs> so that's the difference I think between the patriotic response and the nationalist response. Yeah, I mean, I, where things get squirmy for me is in the intersectionality conversation. And you talk a little bit about this as well, because I am in many ways sympathetic to people's right to identify how they feel they want to identify. I'm sympathetic to traumas people may have experienced as a result of the color that they were born or the gender identification mm -hmm. that they, they have. And I feel that those are things that are worth protecting. And you do, I think you agree. I hope my, yes, yeah. I, I hope my account, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book was to offer as sympathetic, very sympathetic accounts of the people who don't agree with me or might be seen as antagonists. And I hope I offer a very sympathetic account of intersectionality as a program and as a desire. It's one of the things I'm proudest of, Jason, that when uh, the Anita Hill hearings happened back when, probably <laughs> before you were born. In 91, the first thing... Uh, not before. Not before, <laughs> but maybe before you were doing a podcast, certainly. Maybe before I was sentient. I, I wrote a piece for The New Yorker. I wrote the editorial page for The New Yorker that week saying, this is a case in which everything that my sisters, I have five sisters, have been telling me my whole life, I suddenly realized is profoundly true in ways I could never understand before that a woman's life is less important than a man's work, right. that women are hysterical, can't be trusted. On and on, we could go down, down those things. So I'm completely sympathetic with that account. And beyond that, that Anita Hill was speaking as a black woman, not simply as a woman, but with a more complicated intersectional identity. I think that those things are positive and terrific in their ways sure. of expanding the range of our understanding. Where I differ, and I think where liberals differ from leftists, frankly, about this, is that I accept that we will all have multiple identities in a lifetime. We speak from many different voices, from many different identities. To try to essentialize anybody's identity right. as you speak only from white privilege, it's certainly true, we do, and we can't pretend otherwise. We also speak from a Jewish background. We speak from the particular background we have. I'm a Canadian who came to New York, right. and a large part of my identity is Canadian. It's coming from a place where national health insurance is an unquestioned acquisition where the habits of compromise are enshrined rather than, than made light of. So I think that we all naturally speak from the identity we have, but I also think it's equally important that we can all speak to whomever we want and that that's a fundamental liberal value and that ultimately the power and truth and importance of our words doesn't depend on their origin, it depends on their power, it depends on their truth. It becomes a complicated conversation, though, precisely because if we are talking about very real, you know, undeniable effects of power structures in a, in a country, and if people are trying to 
you know, if we're trying to have a kind of national self-reckoning about mm -hmm. these things and to say, okay, to what extent is there a thing called white privilege, which by the way, we'll get back to because right. I like what you have to say yeah. about privilege, but to what extent is this a thing? How does it affect other people? I mean, these are, these are, I think, conversations that well, need to be had. Need to be had. You know, I, I don't know if I remember now, and I honestly can't remember if I used this image in the book. I think I may have done, but I, at one point when I was talking to Olivia, I said, you know, you go to the Disney Hall of Presidents. And everybody in the Hall of Presidents is a white guy, a middle-aged white guy, except for one. <laughs> then you got to think, that's not an accident. Right? Right, it didn't right, just right, kind of right. work out that right, way. Right, right, right. Nor was it just, you know, well, those were the most talented people we had. We looked at everybody, but it was the middle-aged white guys right. who deserved to be the boss. So obviously, anybody with an ounce of sense or an eye in their head can see that that exists. That, that, sure. that those deep-seated prejudices and, in quotes, your privileges exist. Who it just seems like a very like it's a very subtle line right from there to then the conversation that's like essentially in the context of say this political conversation or whatever it might be anything you might have to say must be evaluated exactly. in, in those terms it's a very very so, subtle line as i as you said correctly and it's mm -hmm. one of the themes of the book grown-up people can count to two <laughs> right we, right if we can know more than one thing about a social phenomenon if we don't know more than one thing about it then we don't know right. the social phenomenon so we can say take the lesson of the disney hall of presidents and and incorporate it into your understanding right. of the history of this country and the nature of whatever you want to call it, white supremacy uh, and so on. At the same time, and this is where, you know, I try to talk about this whole question. At the same time, we know that almost every radical progressive idea that has helped humanity along has usually come from someone in a position of privilege. Anarchism comes from Prince Kropotkin, right? Who okay, was right. An, an aristocrat, comes from Bakunin. Those were ideas that came from surprising places, but that had enormous effects. In part, they had to come from surprisingly privileged places. I don't like that term, but let's use it for a moment. Because those were the people who had the, the education and the leisure to think hard about what the world could be. Right. So, so we can do both things at once. We can recognize, and all of us need to recognize, the background that gives us opportunities and so on. And we can say that nobody's speech can be judged simply in terms of their background or their origin. It's one of the fundamental things about the sciences. And here I can, I'll be a little bit evangelical. The great revolution that we call the scientific revolution can be simply defined. Instead of arguing from authority saying, who said that? And if you tell me who said that, I'll know it's true. Right. We say, Galileo said, I don't care if Aristotle said it, I'll show it. And if I show it to you, you'll know it's true from the evidence. That's a fundamental revolution in rationality. Right. And we always have to keep that revolution in rationality at the forefront of our consciousness. I really like what you have to say about privilege, uh, which is specifically that the thing that we often call privilege, or when we use the word privilege, we're often referring to rights and experiences that we ought to want for everybody. And I think, you know, the, the other side of that or another dimension of that is that when we start attacking privilege, we can end up making enemies of things like education, as they did, say, in Maoist China, and start tearing down universities and burning books. Exactly. You've summarized it better than I could, but that's exactly, I'll now just echo your summary. <laughs> that's exactly it, right? 
I think that what we often call privilege that, and it's certainly true that a white kid walking into a bodega or trying to hail a taxi has advantages over a black kid. Who can dispute that? Or in, in the more extreme cases, being stopped by a cop. But the point should be that everybody is exactly what we're describing as the privilege of the white kid is the normal residue of citizenship. That's right. how people ought to be treated. Right. And one of the things we've seen clearly is, is that that kind of equitable treatment has expanded, right? You know, we don't think about it any much any longer. But one of the reasons why we put Jews and the Irish into the basket of whiteness right. is because where they once were, the victims of that kind of inequity, they no longer are. Our rights are privileges, if you like, have expanded. That's the task of a democratic society, right. is not to recriminate the people who have them, but to make sure that everyone is equally included in possession of, of those rights and of that kind of treatment. More broadly though, you know, the thing that's essential for me in thinking about this is that the conversation that turns around question of privilege is always going to be, in my view, a destructive one for progressive-minded people because it turns into a series of accusations. And one of the things that's true is, is that though we can understand the idea in an abstract way, everybody's personal experience is not one or is very rarely one of privilege. The Trumps inherited their money from, their, from finagling the taxes from their father. But for most part, when you confront people about it, you know, I'll be personal about it. Sure. You know? Olivia, a book's written for Olivia. My mother, Olivia's grandmother, was a very poor working class Jewish immigrant kid who got a scholarship to Penn, wasn't allowed to study math because women weren't allowed to study math in the 1950s. So she became, I believe, and I, I, the first woman ever to get a PhD in formal logic at Penn and went on to become a well-known scientist uh, at that time too. That doesn't sound to me, and that's the, the platform in which I attained my education in which Olivia, in effect, got hers. That doesn't sound to the people involved in it like privilege. It sounds like purpose. It sounds like enormous sure. purposefulness working in the world. And I don't think that's a, uh, an aberrant story. It's the way many people would narrate. And I would say that that's why when people get sort of defensive about yeah. pulling themselves up by their bootstraps right. and say, look, you know, it's hard work, right. you know, that got yeah. us here kind of thing. That's understandable because that is their experience. Right. What they might be missing is the broader kind of it's historical context. Exactly, that, and that's what that's you know. counting to two. You can both, you can recognize that both things are true. That the right. story of purpose is not a, a fable or something imagined. It's very real for the people who participated in it. But it takes place within a broader umbrella in which people with fairer skin have advantages over people with darker skin and. Right. and uh, all those kinds. We can recognize both things. What we can say, and I think this is this is the crucial point, is that in any society that we've actually known, any historical society, and in any imaginable society, I think, there are going to be people with more good fortune and people with less good fortune. Sure. You know, I was reading a good book about Quanah Parker. My wife's name is Parker, but they're not related, who was the great Comanche leader of the 19th century, okay. who was half European, actually, and half uh, Comanche. And... One of the things that's striking is the Comanche bands, these nomadic raiding bands, had very strong hierarchies of who was more fortunate and who was less, determined by your skill as a warrior and the number of horses you owned. There's no society known to, to humankind that doesn't have more people with more and less good fortune. Sure. The question is, what do you do with that good fortune? Do you hoard it or do you share it? And that's the great liberal question. What liberals say is, however you got your good fortune, you have a responsibility to share it, and it's wrong to hoard it. 
And we found very effective ways of getting people to share it. That's been a very successful social project. Imperfect, like all liberal sure, projects. Sure. And right now we live in a moment when there's far too much hoarding and not sufficient sharing. But saying to people, you know, you've had enormous good fortune, share your good fortune with the people who are less fortunate. That's on the whole, the kind of request that has historically been more or less successful. Saying to someone, you've been unfairly privileged, you don't get to participate in this next social discussion, that's a total failure. That's a total non-starter as a political premise. You know, and what that brings up for me, because I've been having a lot of conversations and doing a lot of reading recently around capitalism Mm -hmm. and around how markets work and how that affects the way that we live and so on. And some things that I think would be rightly identified as Marxist or Mm post-Marxist as well. And, you know, one point that an author that was on this show recently, Martin Hagland from from Yale, who wrote a book called This Life, made, which I found interesting, was that the liberal redistribution model, while it is the most effective way that we've found, I guess, to reduce inequality in capitalist societies, the problem with it from his perspective, I mean, as the final Mm -hmm. answer, (laughs) is that Endless growth seems to really be the engine that supports credit, supports economies, supports supports money, and that to the extent that our welfare is attached to that, we're going to be subject to those same boom and bust cycles. We're not going to be able to do a hell of a lot about extracting all the value out of individuals' time, turning people's lives into part of the clock and extracting everything from the planet. Now, I know we don't have a model for anything that's, well, that's better. It's one of the things that, that always strikes me is that we have two competitive amnesias. Right-wingers act as though the 19th century never happened, and left-wingers <laughs> very often act as though the 20th century never happened. So right-wingers talk about the emergence of Marxism and of socialism as though these were crazy ideas thought up for no particular reason by wild-eyed intellectuals right. instead of rational responses to the immiseration of vast parts of the community in the Western world. You can read Dickens as well as Marx and you'll get the, you'll get <laughs> right, the picture right, right, of why right. this happened. But leftists, I think, tend to treat the 20th century as though it didn't happen. It wasn't as though there weren't many, to put it mildly, energetic attempts to uh, sure. uh, address the, these inequities. And we actually learned from experience. And one of the things we learned is, is that the model, call it broadly social democratic, where you understand that free markets produce enormous prosperity, they also produce enormous inequity, they also produce booms and busts, and you try to intervene as best you can to minimize the inequities, to limit the booms and busts while still getting the, the as much as you can from the uh, from the market model, that kind of works. It works imperfectly, but it kind of works better than the other models that were tried. It's certainly, unquestionably, more broadly humane. You end up with fewer people in prison camps. And that's that's with respect to, yeah, like when we're talking about totalitarian, centrally planned, you know, socialist and communist. On the question of growth, because it's a a really relevant one. That's one where you're not going to solve it through socialism for certain, because socialist societies have the same appetite for growth, produce the same kind of environmental degradation as capitalist societies do. Asking people to consume less, asking people to be less oriented towards growth, that's a very old and very honorable and admirable impulse. But again, there again, it's not, it's an impulse that's going to have to be turned into a persuadable set of beliefs, into a program. And so to say, there is no program for that, there is no model for that, as though that's the afterthought, rather than the primary problem, I think can miss the the scale of the, of the difficulty. 
The truth is that we have plenty of evidence of how it is that you can have an ecological model within a capitalist society that does better rather than worse. It doesn't do perfectly, sure. but it does better rather than worse. I come from one of those countries, Canada, where a lot of that has taken place. I don't think green politics are in any sense an impossibility, but they're going to have to be politics. They can't just be ideology. The concern is that with the rise of this massive scaled internet-fueled techno-capitalism that, you know, what we're seeing with Uber and Airbnb and so on, that jobs are paying less and less. It's, it's very difficult to envision a future in which an economy driven in that way provides happy life for most people, that's, it's, that's, or, I, or even a large look, number of I've people. I've seen yeah. it in the world I've lived in, in the <laughs> yeah, world yeah, of yeah, yeah. journalism, in the media, yeah, yeah, and yeah. publishing. I, you know, you'd have to be blind not to recognize the, the yeah. broad devastation of the crops. Yeah, that, I mean, I don't, I don't want to hammer endlessly yeah. on this. And, no, you know, no, but, but yeah, I th yeah. so it's a perfectly legitimate point. What the liberal answer to it is, is to say you have identified <laughs> a series of specific things that are badly in need of reform. Right. So what are the reforms that are going to make sense in the that are going to alter them. Right. Some of these reforms, and this is thematic to the book, and it's why it's called A Thousand Small Sanities, can be quite small and yet be effective. You raise the minimum wage, right? right. You impose an inheritance tax. You invest more in pre-K schooling. There are lots of things, specific small things that we can do that can potentially, not just potentially, but that will have very large effects. So what liberalism always says is, tell me what to reform and I'll try and build a coalition to reform it. But it's not helpful to be told that this is unreformable because if it's unreformable, then, then liberalism pauses. And don't tell me, and this is where the liberals get tetchy and bad-tempered and, and unhappy, don't tell me, oh, we have to have a revolution because we tried that. That's, <laughs> that's, that is on the historical record. That's not going to work. That, I can guarantee you, is going to aggravate the problem and create suffering on a much larger scale than we know. We really do have that kind of experience. And people who speak that way for the most part especially younger people, generally just don't understand what that history is. And they don't really grasp the, as I say, they have total amnesia about the 20th century. I don't think there's a contradiction here, but I think there's something interesting mm -hmm. here, which is that when you make the distinction between liberalism or liberals and the left, yes. and you talk about radicals, you know, mm -hmm. or radicalism, right. on the one hand, there's a lot of like direct critique of radicalism right. in the sense of revolution and all the harm that right. kind of radical solutions can cause as opposed right. to these thousand small right. sanities. On the other hand, you say that liberalism allows for uh, ideas that might once have been radical or considered radical to move to the center. So when you want to point to things and call them radical and then say that that's a bad thing, isn't that, is there oh, some contradiction totally. there? That's a very, yeah. no, that's a very sensitive reading of, of the book. And one of the things I was trying to say in the chapter, why the left hates liberalism, is exactly that, that there's been a constant um, uh, back and forth of feedback between what we call radicalism and liberalism that has been enormously healthy for both. That's why I end the chapter on the figure of Frederick Douglass, who in my mind right. is the greatest American. Right, that's who, right. Yeah. Who was both a radical, totally non-compromising, uh, obviously abolitionist, anti-slavery activist who had no time at all for the notion that, oh, we just have to wait. But at the same time, rejected the violent radicalism of John Brown, with whom he was aligned early on, right. and realigned himself with the Republican radicalism of Abraham Lincoln. 
and said, that's going to be the way forward. And he stayed in that mode after the war. That's one of the things that makes Douglas such an extraordinary figure, is he shows us how a radical uh, mind and a radical set of ambitions can be expressed through a liberal temperament. That's and, what Douglas was all about. So it exists in dialogue you know, within yes. his own soul, basically, between multiple sides of his own character and thinking, but also in dialogue with Lincoln We're, and the larger yes, exactly. society. We're not, none of us can be Frederick Douglass, right, who, right. for whom that dialogue, exactly as you say, was embodied within one soul and one person. But we live within a society where that dialogue is embodied every day. And it's exactly true that things that we think of would have seemed unimaginable in the 19th century. Women's equality, when the right of women not only to vote, but to fully participate as full equals in society. When John Stuart Mill, who is to liberalism what Marx is to leftism, when he died, it's shocking to read the obituaries because they treat his feminism that he learned from his Harriet Taylor, his wife and teacher. They treated this comical. They say, you know, you know, so they sort of treat it like vegetarianism, which right. they also treated as comical at those days, right? Oh, we had these little fads and fallacies. You thought women should be treated as equal. Ho, ho, ho. And that's something that seems to us Canonical, foundational, yeah, inarguable. Yeah, yeah. Even right-wingers are, yeah. are compelled to pay at least lip service to it. So yes, that's one of the things that liberal societies are good at, is taking ideas that once seemed radical and making them seem uh, essential, making them seem self-evident. Right, but not revolution, probably. Well, you know, <laughs> you know I, I don't want to seem like a unreflective on that because it's a complicated question. I say very specifically in the book that the American Revolution was a revolution. You know, they're watching right, it right, now. Right, right, they're right, right, on right, Hamilton right. on 43rd Street. You know, the world turned upside down, the Battle of Yorktown. Yep. Not a great battle to be celebrating, by the way, because there were lots of slaves who had run across the lines and had taken refuge with the British who were re-enslaved after the Americans won the Battle of Yorktown. Just a little note to Lin-Manuel <laughs> Miranda, one of my heroes, but that happens to be the case. Nonetheless, liberal revolutions were the revolutions of 1848. Liberal revolutions are, are essential. It's not that liberals are frightened pacifists. It's that liberals re recognize the full experience of history, which tells you that an enormous amount can be accomplished by reform, has been accomplished by reform, by right. mobilized reform, by Bayard Rustin's kind of reform, and that very little has been accomplished by uh, radical rhetoric and radical action. That just is a, that's a fact. That revolution is a absolute last resort. Yes, an absolute last resort, not a pleasant daily reverie. Right, right, that right. I, that I think is true. No, and I'll, I'll yeah. just add one more, one more point yeah, to that yeah. too. Whatever the revolution might be, and we can all imagine revolutionary circumstances, essential to the post-revolution are going to be liberal institutions, institutions, because that's what we learned from the failed revolutions of the 20th century. If you don't have liberal institutions, freedom of speech protected, an oscillation of parties, the right to dissent, all of those things that we take for granted and regard as just the commonality, the common ground of politics, if we don't have those things in hand, we don't protect those things, then the possibility of positive change is going to be eradicated. And defending liberal institutions is not a way of being reactionary. It's a way exactly of, of trying to serve what I like to call radicals of the real. And that's what liberals are. They're radicals of the real. And they are, believe that radical change is possible through humane and pluralistic measures. Adam, I think now in the time that remains to us, let's do the second thing that we do in this show. Sure. Please. Which is uh, for the audience, this is Big Think also does video interviews, and these are short clips that were chosen by our producers to spark conversation wherever it might go. Great. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Okay, so this one is uh, from Kurt Anderson, who is uh, the host of, he's an old friend of yours, okay, and he's the host of uh, Studio 360, and he's an author, prolific author, and it is about the gun control debate and the Second Amendment. Uh, we all now know about the Second Amendment. We hear about it all the time. It, 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 it is a huge driver of, of our politics on the right. Um, what people need to know is that the Second Amendment only recently became uh, such a salient amendment. Here's the Second Amendment. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. Let me repeat that. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, first of all, what did that mean, the Second Amendment, uh, back in the 1780s and 90s, um, when, when the Constitution and its uh, First Amendments were written? Um, uh, it meant because the, United, the, the new United States would have no standing army, that any armed defense of the states or the United States would depend on militia who would be mobilized to fight the fights they needed to fight. So there's that. Another important fact about the state of play when this amendment was written was the nature of, of arms themselves, of guns. Uh, a really good shooter could fire mm, three or four rounds a minute. And that's a really good one with these uh, uh, poorly aimed uh, muskets and early rifles that they had. So that was, that was what was being regulated. It was, oh, let's have a militia and they can use these guns, which were the state of the art, but compared to many, many, many rounds per second uh, firearms that we have today, um, were, it's the same word, but virtually a different machine. So, the, so fast forward, or slow forward. For, for centuries, the Second Amendment didn't really come up. Uh, people had guns. They hunted, eh, not everybody, but that's what happened. They, 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 they used them for protection in, in rare cases, but it wasn't a big deal. Until uh, starting in the 1960s, when suddenly in a matter of months and a few years, uh, a president, uh, a presidential candidate, uh, the great leader of, of African America and freedom, Martin Luther King, uh, were killed and other other people uh, attacked by assassins, suddenly it, it seemed to reasonable people that we should have some controls on, on who can get guns how easily. So uh, we enacted some very modest regulations about registration and, 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 and limiting uh, certain kinds of cheap weapons and so forth. And back then, the National Rifle Association was, was reasonable, was fine. There's no subject about which I've written as much or as passionately as <laughs> gun control. 
And it's one of my two polemical subjects, that and incarceration, mass incarceration. And the thing that's maddening about the gun control debate, is, as Kurt uh, references briefly there, is that that's a case where the contextual originalist dispute doesn't even apply because it's perfectly clear and was clear right, for right, hundreds right. of years that the Second Amendment begins with the words well-regulated. Militia, the words well-regulated are right in there, that the Second Amendment was a gun control amendment. It was a way of trying to organize the presence of weapons in the society. It was not a license for them to spread freely. And what's exasperating, maddening, infuriating about it all is that nobody ever interpreted it in any other way except as a way of supplying a militia, not as conferring an individual right to buy arms until you're in my lifetimes. That never, no one ever, and the decision, the disgraceful decision in my mind, Heller, is barely a decade old. And one of the great documents of American jurisprudence is Justice Stevens, a Republican conservative justice, dissent on that in a 5-4 vote saying, this is crazy. This is crazy. No one ever imagined that the Second Amendment guaranteed an individual right to own weapons. We've just revolutionized the interpretation of this amendment for no good reason, just because out of a political spasm on Justice Scalia's part. And Jill Lepore argues in her recent right. book that, you know, this emerges in the context of divide and conquer political yes. messaging strategy. Yes, really. it, like, yes exactly. It's, it has no, so that's a case where there's no constitutional ground. There are other things like the Electoral College, right, which do us enormous damage, which are in fact rooted in the Constitution and would have to be rooted out if we're going to, to get them. But the question is, is, okay, what do we do about gun violence, yeah. the plague of gun violence? So it's a source of some despair and endless Logorrhea on my part. I write about it all the time. And that's where the title of this book comes into play, A Thousand Small Sanities. What we do know is every time we reduce the availability of guns, gun violence goes down. A great uh, student of this, David Hemingway at Harvard, and he's shown again and again and again, the fewer guns, the less gun violence. Now, we can't control the country as a whole. This is a good example of the power of pluralism. And we can't be crazy enough to think, oh, we're gonna be able to go down to Alabama and overnight persuade everybody to accept our view of the Second Amendment and of guns. Or, or by fiat, take everybody's yes, or guns take, away. Or by, you know, do yeah. too. What we can do is we can bring legislation to bear here in New York City. We can do it in New York State. We can do it in more and more places. Doesn't always work perfectly. Chicago has decent gun control laws municipally, but they sit right on the cusp of uh, gun-free states, basically, and so on. Uh, nothing in a liberal society works perfectly. But if we build those little walls more and more and make the effort to sell people, you know, a, an analogy that I always use here is drunk driving, right? Okay. Um, 50 years ago, I know it's hard to believe, but drunk driving was seen as just kind of a cost of the road. People drove drunk and kids got killed and there wasn't much to do about it. But you had the liberal classics. You had first non-governmental action, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and so on. That began to communicate to more and more people. It began to lead to small scale legislation, then to larger scale legislation. And that is a war that's been largely been won. Drunk driving right. is something that is not nearly the plague that it was 40 years ago. Although when I was living in Santa Fe, I don't know, 20 years ago, there was there were actually drive-through liquor stores still. So, <laughs> so hopefully those have been <laughs> all right. I don't know. And it's funny, New Mexico being a liberal state, look, we're not going to find a perfect <laughs> solution, right? But that's a good model of right. how we can find ever better solutions. And I think we're going to, people are going to be able to be persuaded that, you know, breathalyzer ignitions are going to be a good idea. You know, you put breathalyzer ignitions in and you're really going to kill where you can't drive at all if you're intoxicated, can't turn the key. Those are the ways we can think about it. And doing those things is, has a real effect. State by state, 
In Connecticut, you have reduced gun mortality because you've reduced the availability of guns. Those are very imperfect solutions, but they are available solutions and they really have an effect. And one of the things that we've learned is that those things are not futile at all. They're imperfect and the prevalence of gun massacres is something that will trouble us indefinitely. We can make significant changes on small scales. Yeah, I would say, yeah, that the, the gun massacres are a real challenge to incrementalism because every time one of them happens, it just the immediate powerful response Jason, is, tell me about this it. must <laughs> end now. Yeah, I've written yeah, about yeah, it, yeah, I think yeah, probably yeah. as much as any journalist in America, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. I've written about it in that sense of despair. And, you know, the small comfort you get sometimes the, the most heartbreaking things ever happened. It's the father of one of the kids who was killed in that crazy uh, incel massacre, do you remember, in California, mm -hmm. wrote to me to say, thank you for writing these things, even though, you know, unimaginable loss. What you can say about it is, is that change happens slowly and then all at once, and that we that there's right. simply no reason to despair. And the other thing you have to say, Jason, is what are our alternatives? Right. Where it's not realistic to think we are going to suddenly persuade people who have this deep investment in the gun as a symbol of their autonomy. Right. You know, this is gonna sound frivolous, but I really do think it's true. I've always struggled to empathize with people for whom the possession of a gun is so foundational to their sense of being an individual. And I realize you know what it's like a bit? It's like guitars. I'm not a very good guitar player, <laughs> but I love guitars, right? And I can spend hours looking online at old Fender Stratocasters. Me and, too. And do you have the same thing? <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous, right? But they're very powerful symbols for me of artistic expression of continued youth and so on. And I think that's what, for somebody who comes from a different part of the culture, that's what looking at guns is like. They're not thinking about shooting people any more than I'm thinking about playing Madison Square Garden. But that's a very powerful. No, it's them out there in, right. in the wind, you know, yes, in exactly. the Great Plains, you know, moving through America. Exactly. You know, like, yeah. So we have to <laughs> attempt those minimal acts of empathy or we're never going to understand the world we're living in. But I do believe that progress is possible. And the other truth is when we look at the vast social change that we've all lived through is that there, you should forgive my saying this because it's, <laughs> it's uh, copyrighted by my good friend Malcolm Gladwell, but there are surprising tipping points that happen. We've lived through one in the last 10 years, and that's gay marriage, right? Sure. From 2005 to 2019, gay marriage went from being a fringe position to being an indisputed central position. And it changed first, so to speak, on the street. It changed among people's interactions and mores. And then it communicated itself from the ground upward right. to Justice Roberts and the Supreme Court. I often think, Jason, I, uh, I was showing Olivia the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates from 1960 in okay. the con context of this conversation, my conversation with her. And you cannot imagine the moderator at that point saying, uh, gentlemen, uh, Mr. Nixon, what do you think about the possibility of legal marriage for homosexuals? It's not only not right, right, going right, to get right. a good response, it's an unimaginable question to ask. And now here we are, and I'm old enough to remember the Kennedy-Nixon debates. We live in a world in which gay marriage is an acquired right that may be embattled in places that are on the fringe, but is essentially a settled right that is not going to be upset in our society. That's what liberals point to as examples of how change happens. And again, I think it's super important that people not misunderstand you on the point that the shrill voices, the outrage, the you know, the immediate sort of zero sum response, that's that is part of the conversation. That's essential that's, to it. That's yeah, 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 that's yeah, essential yeah, yeah, to it. Yeah, yeah. But it's not sufficient to it. Right. It's not sufficient to it. And that cycle by which sometimes within the life and in the, the spirit of a single individual, uh, and sometimes within a society, the way that cycle happens is the way that what I call unapologetically progress happens. 
Well, we're going to draw a line under the conversation here, <laughs> but, uh, but thanks so much for this, Adam Gopnik. This has been a great conversation. I'm delighted to have it. Let's carry it on. That's our show for this week. I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the ideas that we talked about or anything else you've been thinking about recently. Come by my website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com to drop me an email or sign up for my mailing list. Next week's conversation is a fascinating one with Susan Hockfield, neuroscientist and former president of MIT about the future and the ethics of biotechnology. And I really hope you can join me for that. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit amfam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.